Hello, and welcome to the Church Newtown Square podcast. If we can serve you in any way, or if you'd like to learn more about our church family or the Acts 29 network, please visit us at churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. And now, let's listen in to today's teaching. If you are joining with us for the first time this morning, we've been working through uh, this <clears throat> letter of Corinthians, the, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, verses uh, chapters 12 through 14. And uh, as we've been studying 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, we've taken some time to understand Paul's larger flow of thought and to try to take some time to define some terms for us. Uh, we're going to take a look this morning at the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and uh, as I've mentioned before, Paul's primary point is for us to understand not each gift in particular, although though we will understand and, and seek to understand that, the, the larger understanding is what does it look like when the church gathers together like we are doing this morning in corporate worship, and how do we exercise these gifts of the Spirit? And in, particu- in particular, the Corinthian church, <clears throat> excuse me, the Corinthian church was struggling with how do they do such things in a mature way. Uh, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 30, if we're going to kind of look at the, the flow of thought again, Paul speaks to the unity of the body, and then he points to the diversity of gifts that are given to them. And then he goes on to speak about the most excellent way that we can present ourselves in worship, which is in love to one another, in love for Christ and in love for one another. It is for the common good that we exercise these spiritual gifts. Then in chapter 14, what Paul will do is he'll encourage us encourage the church in Corinth to pursue that which is building up for the church. In fact, the point is Paul is trying to instruct them on how to use two particular spiritual gifts, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. You can pick that up in the flow. He is arguing that the thing that is best for the church is that thing that is most understood, and we're going to work through that uh, in a few weeks, Uh, next week most likely or the week after. Then finally, what Paul does is he gives some order and instruction to the church about how they should order themselves during public corporate worship. The reason I say that is because we can, we can get stuck and bogged down into the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And in the context of the passage, we want to understand that the end goal is for us to worship well, to, to worship in such a way that is not only building up for the church, but also a witness to the world around us and for those who would join us in seeing how Christ manifests himself in his people. And so we talked about that, the fact that every believer is gifted by God, and now we're talking about the gifts that are used by God, and Paul points us to be open to the Holy Spirit and to be others-centered, and to remember that uh, the objective is love for Christ and that our worship should be orderly. Uh, Spiritual gifts are for the common good of the church, which are to be done in love for Jesus and for one another. Now, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, he opens by saying that there are multiple gifts, uh, but the same spirit. <clears throat> and then what we ask is, what are those spiritual gifts that we're being, using, being used in the context of the local church? So I gave some context last week as to the reasons why the topic of spiritual gifts is somewhat confusing. And it's sometimes uh, unnecessarily divisive against Christians. I'm not going to repeat myself this week. You can listen to that for yourself Uh, And if you need a refresher, you can go onto our website and listen to that. Uh, I will remind us one thing that Pentecost, the reason why Pentecost happened in the redemptive story of God is, one, to point us to the reality that the promised Holy Spirit is given to us permanently. And it is not just given to one people, it's given to all people, which is the foundation with which Paul says that we can have the Spirit poured out on us, that all are gifted by the Holy Spirit. 
this means that the Spirit is as much present with us today, whoever we are or wherever we are, wherever we come from or whoever we're descended from. The Spirit is as much alive in us today as he was present in those in the first century. So we have been given the Holy Spirit as a gift. And that gift that is given to us is not the thing that comes and goes, but the gifts that the Holy Spirit present in us manifest themselves for the building up of the body. And so in verse 8, Paul begins to list the things that are manifesting in the Corinthian church. In verse 7 he says that a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. And then what he will do is he will go and he lists the fruits of the Spirit, not the, the manifestations of the Spirit. In verse 8 last week, we focused on the fact that to one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. It pointed out that the emphasis here is on the logos, the message that is producing wisdom and knowledge, that it is not a distinct uh, gift of wisdom or gift of knowledge, but in fact it is the, the knowledge and the wisdom that is produced by those who have the gift of teaching. That the gift of teaching produces in us a wisdom and a discernment and a knowledge of Jesus Christ and of his gospel and of the story of God. Wisdom and knowledge are paired here together that serves as a result of someone who is teaching. Teaching and preaching from which a person will gain wisdom in life and knowledge of God in the context of worship. As we move on to verse uh, 9, Paul says that to another, faith by the same spirit. Now this, this faith here, this word is not saving faith. Uh, the reason why we laid the foundation is saying you cannot be spiritual apart from the Holy Spirit. So this is not a saving faith. This word faith here is not one that means that to one is giving faith to believe, but it is a faith to have an extraordinary trust in God. In other words, this gift is not the tendency of the optimist to be positive about everything, saying that, man, everything is awesome. Everything is going to be awesome. Faith is not the, the power to just see with everything rose, the rose-colored glasses, right? Someone quoted it like this. The optimist proclaims that we live in the best of all possible worlds, and the pessimist fears that this is true. Did you catch that? <laughs> some of you live with people who are optimists, and some of you are pessimists by nature. It's your temperament. You just, I don't know. But that's not what this is. Faith is not just, just, it, it, just being positive about everything. Uh, D.A. Carson defines it well. He says, this special faith enables a believer to trust God to bring about certain things for which he or she cannot claim some divine promise recorded in scripture, or some state of affairs grounded in the very structure of the gospel. This is a faith that is not claiming things like Jesus Christ has said that he would save us because of his resurrecting power. That's a promise that's given to us in the gospel. This type of faith is one that looks at God's character and stands firmly on his promises Seen in Hebrews chapter 11. If you're familiar with chapters 11, it's known as the hall of faith. People that looked ahead, they, they, they didn't see actually what was to come, but they trusted that God promised that it was there. Modern examples of extraordinary faith might be someone like Amy Beatrice Carmichael. If you're familiar with her, she lived between the time of 1867 and 1951. And she was an Irish Christian missionary in India who at 28, at 28, trusted God and believed God for opening an orphanage and founded a mission in India 
where she served there for 55 years, trusting that God would meet her in that act of faith. Or perhaps you might be familiar with Hudson Taylor, who was a British Christian missionary to China who founded the China Inland Mission, spending 51 years there in China, establishing schools and churches there uh, for those who had never heard the gospel. Or perhaps uh, you might think of Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade for Christ as a ministry for university students, trusting that God wanted people to hear the gospel. And so he stepped out in faith and trusted God for ministries across the globe. He wrote a book called The Four Spiritual Laws. He trusted God to raise up people to produce a film called The Jesus Film. He had great faith. He trusted that God would meet him if he moved forward in faith. Church planters, people that start ministries, people that respond to something that is on their heart that they believe God for. This is the faith, the faith to believe God for his promises. But we need not only look to these stories of faith. So, so what we tend to do is we tend to take these men and women and we elevate them. I just, just kind of put that all before you. But the one thing that we need to, to understand is that this faith is not a scenario for those who are just super spiritual. Again, this is, we tend to do this. We tend to hyper-spiritualize people who do great things. But faith exercising faith as is here, the gift of faith, it means that in every scenario, in perhaps even this local church, in every small local church, some scenario requires the gift of someone who has the gift of faith. The gift of faith is distributed by the Spirit as he chooses to to boost perhaps maybe flagging the morale of his people. Someone that says that, no, we're going to stay here. We're going to stay here and we're going to continue on. We're going we're to persevere in small things or trusting God for things that seemingly look small to the outside world. Perhaps the local church pursuing an upward call of God where they believe that perhaps maybe we need to trust God for uh, our budget failures or perhaps the provision for a youth group leader or even the calling of a new pastor or even a decision that needs to be made regarding facilities or missions or meeting a need in the local church. What faith does, this gift of faith, it, it underwrites our obedience to Jesus as Lord. And even the most seemingly insignificant member, which we will get to in the illustration of the diversity in the body and the need for one another, even the most insignificant member, seemingly, may well be used to impart such faith for the whole body at a crucial moment of decision making. Have you ever experienced that? Or some little old lady in the back, or some little old man, or some unassuming person stands up and says, well, I I believe that we can trust God for this and we should move forward. And everybody rallies to it and says, that's true, and then it happens. And these are the things that we have uh, been given in the body of Christ where we do not need great vision casting and leaders and strength, but rather it is any member in the church who might have this gift given of faith, extraordinary faith. Now Paul moves on in chapter 10, uh, verse 10, he says to another Uh, gifts of healing by the one spirit to another the performing of miracles to another prophecy what we're beginning to enter into is what's known as the miraculous gifts and the revelatory gifts Uh, they're divided by uh, things that are miraculous being that they're supernatural they do not happen in the natural Uh, and then the revelatory things that reveal what is on God's heart and then come directly from God in the gifts of healing, here it's plural. Uh, the word, the Greek here is it's plural. It's gifts of charismata. It is a, it's a pluralized word of charismata. It's another gift. And these plural gifts are given by the one spirit. 
the gifts of healing seem to be uh, something that is for the various illnesses in, in various ways. If the verses in chapter, uh, in verses 8, if we think about 8 overlapping with wisdom and knowledge, if wisdom and knowledge are, in, uh, are overlapping, Paul might be overlapping these gifts here as well, where he's trying to point to the fact that some are given gifts of various uh, healings, that perhaps in the early church there were uh, multiple ways in which people needed healing. They needed uh, a miraculous healing, and miracles as Opposed to just healing, miracles could be something where it's either healing diseases or well, or perhaps the exorcism of demons. Maybe perhaps uh, doing something that is uh, beyond healings. No one really knows. The context doesn't tell you. But what we do is we, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so what kind of healings do we see in the New Testament? Well, the healings of Jesus and of the apostles, if you read through the Gospels and if you read through the book of Acts which I'm not going to work, walk us through there. You can do that on your own. You can read your Bible. That's why you have one. The gifts of Jesus and the apostles in terms of healing, they were direct, they were specific, and they were by word and they were by touch. They had an immediate impact. And so as we went through the Gospel of John, there was a man who was blind. He was born blind. And one of the miracles Jesus did was told him to see. It was a man who was blind and now he sees. A man who was lame and now he can walk. A person, a son, a daughter who was dead, and now they are alive. Direct healings. This is not kind of just a, um, a slow uh, retrieval to health. These are direct healings. They were no different than uh, what is proposed today in terms of the miraculous. The miraculous healing, if something is miraculous, it, it should be above the supernatural. I mean, it should be above the natural. It is something that you can't explain other than the supernatural effect of God. Now, where this comes into play in terms of uh, the need for maturity is that all sorts of people can claim all sorts of gifts of healing. Uh, and sometimes what we see is we see this uh, healing of things that seem subjective to nature. If I have a headache or if there's something that I'm feeling like anxiety or sadness or fear... Or perhaps maybe I have an ache or something that is uh, not really uh, verifiable. It, it can be subjective in nature. Sometimes people claim that they have this gift of healing that seems to be kind of unarguable. It's like, it's like when someone says, and we'll talk a little bit about this, is if someone argues with you that the Lord told me, well, okay, I, I, sometimes we throw that argument out there and it's, it's uh, hard to argue against that because, again, it is subjective in nature. It's objective is truth that is verifiable. It's, it's stated subjective. It's like, well, I kind of feel this way. Well, that's, it's kind of shaky ground. When I first... Uh, when I was first, where, where, this, where this can be damaging is, let me share a story with you. When I was um, uh, a campus director at Westchester University, we were on staff at Penn State for a while, and uh, we, had, we had moved to Westchester, and I was excited to be back. The summer before I got there, uh, the campus director uh, had to walk through something that was uh, significantly trying. A handful of students uh, had a friend who had, was killed tragically in a car accident. In fact, I found out later that this student was um, actually a, a counselor at the camp that I worked at. His name is Martin, and he was a godly kid, and he loved Jesus, and he was tragically killed in a car accident. And before I was the director there, one of the groups of students decided that they wanted to exercise the gift of healing. 
and they wanted to trust God and have exercises of faith, and they wanted to trust God for something big, and they believed that God led them and told them to raise Martin from the dead. Do you see where this is going? So what they did is they went to the funeral and they begged for the parents to let them come over the coffin and pray for the miraculous healing of Martin from the dead because one of them believed that they had the gift of healing. Now, Martin did not rise from the dead. He will one day, but he did not that day. But the hurt that was caused and the, the pain that was caused and the, the witness for uh, immature believing uh, faith there is... is, is the damage was done. When we move forward without understanding or teaching, this is why Paul is teaching us. This is why we submit ourselves to the word and think through the things that we have uh, been told in Scripture. When we subject ourselves to some uh, false teachings or some uh, immature teachings, we see the church act immaturely. We see people that genuinely love Jesus and believe Jesus for great things do things that are not warranted in Scripture. And so when we think about the gifts of healing, this was happening in the Corinthian church. So in context, I want you to, to know that there were believers, men and women that had the gifts of healing in this context. And also, like I said, the miraculous gift of healing does occur, but a particular gift of healing for a particular person to have a gift of healing, I do not believe, and we'll look further at why I don't believe that, that there are individuals that do possess this gift of healing as per the abilities of the apostles in the first century or the early church. Again, this does not mean that I don't think that the scripture leads us to believe that miracles have ceased, only that specific people are given specific gifts of healing to go around and miraculously heal. As we move on, Paul says that there is another gift, and this is the gift of prophecy. There is some confusion about what prophecy is, and the questions about what prophecy was in the first century is uh, enormous. I can give you 12 different books if you want to read about them, all like 500 pages thick. If you want to read them this afternoon, I will be glad to hand them to you. You can do your study on your own. The questions about what and was not prophecy, or what was thought about prophecy, or the different ways in which prophecy is talked about in the scriptures in the whole is, is myriad. But one thing I want you to notice is that the prophecy that Paul speaks about here, the gift of prophecy is not a prepared preaching and teaching as some might argue as they do but it seems that it is an occasional and spontaneous word from God we might look to uh, the words of Agabus in Acts chapter 11 when he had a prophecy for Paul or even when John says that Caiaphas the high priest who was in the Sanhedrin prophesied that Jesus must die for the sake of Israel it is a spont spontaneous event in fact, if you turn really quickly, if you just make a right-hand turn, Paul says that in the order of worship in, in chapter 14, uh, verses 29 through 32, he gives order um, and says that two or th three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first person, the first prophet should be silent. He's giving order in the context of worship, and so it is a spontaneous event. Prophecy does not always need to foretell the future. Uh, it can speak to current circumstances. It may also be used to bring others to faith since it reveals the secrets of the heart. Again, in chapter 14, we'll see where that plays out. But what I want us to see here, just to get a definition of what these gifts are in the context of the Corinthian church. The gift of prophecy 
is linked to having mysteries and knowledge that is not readily accessible. Tom Schreiner, in his book on prophecy and kind of this, the commentary on this, he says this, that the, prophet, the prophetic manifestation in the New Testament is of the same nature, meaning it is the same substance. It, is, it, it operates the same way as it did in the Old Testament. In other words, that it was God communicating typically either through a spontaneous event or a revelation by his prophets, which were authoritative and completely true. And so it is the nature. I, I think that we look here and we can't just come up with different ways in which to skirt around the issue. I believe the gifts of prophecy in the context of the Corinthian church uh, was such that God revealed to someone in this context a word that was to be revealed and it was encouraging to the local church. And as they heard, they were called to weigh it, to discern it. And then the, if it was indeed not necessarily uh, true uh, in terms of its specificity, they were to deem it as not something that was prophetic and they were to move on. Uh, if we go back to Pentecost, if we think about Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter points to Joel's prophecy in chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Uh, in the last days, Peter says, uh, that God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, that your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. And I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. When we hear this, this prophetic word, this, this pointing to God's promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out on his people, what we understand is that this prophecy of Joel is to be universal, that there is no corner on the globe that the spirit is not poured out onto his people. And we ought to expect, so when, when Peter's giving this sermon at Pentecost, the expectation is that, hey, remember the promise that God said he would pour out his spirit? It's happening. It is happening. And here it is. And the reason why you're hearing all of these different languages and tongues and the gospel being proclaimed is because this was the promise of God. And therefore, it is something that we ought to expect that God would manifest himself in the power of this Holy Spirit, not just in the age of the apostles, but throughout the age of the church and to come. The, the Spirit would be with his people. The spirit of prophecy that was recounted in the prophecy of Joel suggests that this is not something that we ought to find absent in any age. We ought to expect God to prophesy through his people. And the prophetic ministry was, okay, in the Old Testament... And is now, in the new covenant, God's present word for God's present people. So, let me ask you this question. Who are God's people? Who are God's present people? Say it loud and say it proud. That's right. Where do we see or hear his word? We see it in scripture. Jesus is the word in the word we see God, we know God, we hear God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he came to his own, and he revealed himself. God has completed his word of revelation to us through Jesus Christ. And when we think of the words of God that we need for life and living and sustaining, all of the word that is necessary for all time and for all of God's people is contained in the Scriptures, in the Holy Scriptures. And so when we think in terms of the prophetic gift now, as the church was growing, God miraculously, we look at history and we say to ourselves, again, 
I, I, I rightly admit that there are those who might disagree with me, but I have, to, I have to look at the scriptures, and I also have to look at the process of how did God work in history? What's the big story? And God shows up, and he does things, and he does things in such a mighty way, in a powerful way in history, and then it accomplishes what he's intended to accomplish, and then there seems to be just kind of like it's not as, it's not as awesome anymore. You know? Jesus Christ comes, he ascends, and now we're like waiting for him to return. The Israelites are enslaved, he rescues, that, rescues them with power, and then he asks them to live for a couple hundred years in the land, just living quiet lives and waiting for him and trusting him. There are ways in which God manifests himself and moves in history, and at the beginning of the early church, we see these things happening, and the church is exploding, and then the church is established, and then over the course of history, we just see certain things needed and certain things that are not needed. And when you think in terms of the prophetic gift now, we ought not to think of it in terms of the fact that there is an augmentation of truth, but rather there is an application of truth. That in other words, a prophetic word rooted in the scriptures might be something that is found in the scriptures and can be verified by the scriptures, but ought to be weighed in such a way in which perhaps someone might be right about how they're applying God's word to our lives. They might feel a nudge of the Holy Spirit to share something that's on their heart. And if it's in line with scriptures, then we take it and we weigh it. Truthfully, I've had plenty of people who have given me prophetic words, friends that have given me prophetic words. And on one hand, some of them have just said, hey, this is the way in which I sense that I, want, I feel like the Lord is speaking, and so I want to share this with you. And they give me a prophetic word, and I listen to them, and they just they, they share with me how they believe that, that the Father desires for me to do all things that are, are good and to kind of like think through the way in which I've been called and to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. I'm like, I think I've heard that before. You're, you're recounting to me something that is in Scripture, and if it affirms with my spirit the things that I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm wrestling with that. Thank you for sharing that. It's an encouragement. It builds me up. I've also had friends that have given me prophetic words that God has told them that something or some, something is going to happen in my life, and it doesn't happen. In some ways, I've had things shared to me that is a prophetic word, and it has come to be the opposite thing. And it has been a painful thing where it's like, why did you share that? That was, that was absolutely wrong. Now, I want you to understand, friends, that the Pentecostal understanding, I pointed to the fact that there's a difference between uh, Pentecostal views of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and other particular views. But I want to, I want to uh, uh, point this out particularly about what is the Pentecostal understanding of prophecy. Pentecostalism believes that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are alive and well, healing, prophecy, tongues, revelatory gifts, miraculous gifts, as they were in the day of Pentecost and in the early church, but it has laid dormant. So the four ways in which I want you to, to know that Pentecostal understanding of prophecy is this. So it is one, a direct revelation from God. A Pentecostal understanding of prophecy is that it is a direct revelation from God. That the thoughts of God have come specifically from God to a particular person gifted with the gift of prophecy. That two, the words of prophecy frequently will include specific directions from God concerning his plans for the future. Three, that the proper verbal form typically used when a gift of prophecy is given to someone in a Pentecostal stream would say that it is God who says that I am the one, that God says I am who speaks is frequently God himself. 
So it is directly from God, speaking through the gifted prophetic word about something in the future, and it is God himself who is speaking. And finally, fourth, that because the sign was given in the apostolic church, it is a sign, it's a prophetic sign, that with the other signs, the sign gifts, they have been in kind of dormancy until recently, until lately. Again, like I said, the history of Pentecostalism comes up in about the, 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 the 1950s. There's a resurgence. And then from that point, there's a, a stream of Pentecostalism that says that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are now uh, awakened. In a, it's a season in the church. Some would call it a third wave of, of uh, the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to get into all of that now. But when you compare the understanding of a Pentecostal view of prophecy and perhaps what is uh, the understanding that if God has revealed to us all that he has intended to reveal to us, is if there is nothing that we need to add, John says that if, anything, if anyone adds to this revelation, let him be accursed. There's, there's nothing we need to add. Jesus, as he's revealed himself to the apostles and the prophets and has said to them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you to teach. Teach them to obey this word. That the necessity for God to add anything to his word seems to be void. There's no need for God to add anything because everything that we have. Now, some might argue with me on this, but uh, I believe that the prophetic gift is not just something that is given to the church uh, as a means by which we might just know the future, but the prophetic gift is something that allows us to know clearly what the scriptures say, and they ought to be weighed uh, carefully. So, as we move on, Paul says that there is another gift. To another, there is distinguishing between spirits. This is plain and simple discernment. Uh, just discernment, deciding what is true from what is false. Uh, John, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, says that we are to test the spirits, to see if they are from God. And the reason is because he says many false prophets have gone out into the world. At the time of the early church, there were many false prophets. There were many who would come in and teach that which was not true. But they were called to discern and to test the spirits. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7 says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, and teaches and does these things that are in my name will be ones that I know. They might do things in the name of me, but they may not be, in fact, for me or with me. This is discernment. You can see throughout the book of Acts and all of the Gospels, if you read through the New Testament, you see that uh, the apostles and uh, the churches are exhorted to discern, to teach through false teaching and lying spirits. That they are to discern everything that is thrown at the church as it advances the gates of hell to beat down the doors. Deception, half-truths. We are called to discern today, to discern what it is that is true and what is not. And the only way, how do we discern? Well, it's if we discern, if we have the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God and the teaching of God and we have his word with us. And so the more we learn of God's word and we think his thoughts after him, uh, the more we're able to discern. But the gift of discernment is discerning which spirit is speaking. Again, remember at the beginning of this uh, chapter where uh, someone was saying, uh, Jesus is cursed in the context of the corporate worship. If you look at verse 3, Paul is saying, you can't say that if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. It just doesn't work. Discerning. Discerning. 
Here's some bonus gifts for you that are listed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, uh, chapter 12, the same 12. If you go forward in verse 28, I figured I would just throw all the gifts in here. You ready? Paul says, and God has appointed different offices in the church, and he lifts other gifts that are not listed in this first one. There's the gift of helping and the gift of leading, or what's otherwise known as administration. In uh, helping, this is the, uh, the word that is used as a very general term for use of all kinds of assistance. It's to lift people up. Antelupsis is the Greek word. It's to, to lift up people. Uh, the second word is translated leading or administration. And in the plural, it indicates various leading, leading positions of the body of Christ. It's typically used in the Greek for piloting or steering a ship. So you have some people that are able to come alongside and assist, and there's some people that are not. There's some people that have come alongside of us and have tried to help, and let's be honest, you've been like, you have helped me absolutely in no way, and I would appreciate if you do not offer your advice anymore. Uh, but then there are those who, do you know the people who help you? You're just like, man, they just come into your life, and they just like, man, thank you for that. That's, you, you, there's no way you would have been able to do that, and they help you, and they do it with joy. People that just know how to steer things. They, they know how to take things in a particular direction, and they do it well. This gift of leading is not the offices of pastor, teacher, elder, but this gift of leading means that people are able to lead in, in a particular way where people will follow them and, in, and it will go well. In Romans chapter 12, Paul lists other gifts. He lists the, lift, the gift of exhortation, which is emboldening another in belief or a course of action. It's, it's to give encouragement, to make a strong request, to make an appeal, to lift another one's spirits, to comfort or to consolidate, uh, to consolidate. To, when someone exhorts you to do something, you, you want to do it. They have this gift where they embolden you and they give you great courage. To another is given the gift of giving. This giving here is uh, uh, giving uh, with generosity. He gives an adjective. He says, when you give, give generously. Uh, that giving there is someone that can give resources to help another. Uh, more than likely in the first century church, there were two types of people, the very rich and the very poor. There was no middle class. And so Paul often speaks to those who are giving and to give generously, those who have resources, and even those who do not, like the Philippian church. They give out of their love for Paul, and they give generously, liberally, without thought of their own selves for the common good they give. There's another uh, word of leadership here, and that is another exercise of leadership where they do it with, with zeal, with diligence, with haste, or with speed. And Paul tells the Roman church that some are given that gift of leading where they do it uh, diligently, where they want to lead, they want to take on a responsibility, and they go with it. Or perhaps the one who is given the gift of mercy, they show mercy with cheerfulness. Uh, the, that cheerfulness word is hilaritas, which is where we get the word hilarity. It's, we do it with cheer, with joy. We show mercy where it is a joy to get down on our knees and to show mercy to someone. In 1 Peter, Paul lists two more gifts, the one who speaks and the one who serves, laleo and diakoneo, which is, again, where we get the word diakone or we get deacon, one who serves, one who speaks. Paul speaks to, uh, Peter speaks to two different gifts, the teacher and the servant, the deacon, the pastor, the elder, the deacon. They have been given gifts to do this. 
Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to burst some of your bubbles and I'm going to show you that one of the things that is not a gift, is not a spiritual gift, is the gift of hospitality. How many of you believe that you have the gift of hospitality? Ah, oh, come on. Some of you are love to be hospitable. But what Peter says is that the gift of hospitality is not necessarily, it's not listed as a spiritual gift. It's actually listed as something that we're all to do. We're all to do. And what does hospitality mean? Hospitality is the generous and gracious treatment of guests. It's people in need of temporary shelter and food because of travel or necessity. Christians are generally urged to show hospitality to everyone. Uh, we don't need to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit to, for us to take in people. Hospitality, in the context of the first century church, are the fact that people were poor and without a home and they were kicked out of their families. And hospitality very much meant taking in an apostle who was preaching or Paul and his servants, taking them into their homes and feeding them and extending grace and kindness to them and, and giving them everything that they need uh, while they were on the road. And so hospitality is not a spiritual gift, but it's something that we all have to do. Sorry, Andrew. You're, but you, are, you can be hospitable. And so those, those are the gifts of the Spirit that we, we come up to and end with uh, the tongues and the interpretation of tongues. And again, what I want you to do is know what these gifts are. So we have people that are helping and leading. They're discerning. They're teaching. They're preaching. They're, they're revealing words of God to the, the Corinthian church. There are people that are speaking in uh, tongues. And then Paul is saying there needs to be an interpretation of tongues. Now, I'm probably not going to satisfy you right now, but we will get to this eventually when we get to the point where Paul begins to specifically, in chapter 14, he, he goes after the gifts of tongues and the interpretation of tongues and their place in worship. But what I want you to do is, I want you, what I want to give to you this morning is I want to finish this list, and I just want to tell you what it is that Paul is talking about when it comes to tongues here. D.A. Carson asked that we need to approach the, task, ta, uh, approach the text and ask three questions. One, in context of the, the Corinthian church, were they ecstatic tongues? Were they ecstatic? Was it just kind of like blabbering on with something that they kind of got caught up in their emotions and the worship? Was it ecstatic? The other question is, was there content? Was there actually something in their words? When I say the Eagles are going to win the Super Bowl, there's content there. Uh, and because you knew what I was saying, it was a known human language. Was it ecstatic? Was, it, was there content? Was there human language? On the balance, when we look at the text, when we look at what Paul is writing here, the evidence favors the view that Paul thought that the gift of tongues was a gift of real languages which were cognitive. That is, that someone other than the speaker would know what was being said because the language actually existed. It was real, it had syntax, it had verbs and nouns and everything. And the language was either a known language of men or an angelic language known only by God. The text is just clear that in this context it was either something that was known or something that was not known in terms of the angelic words that Paul says that even he uh, speaks in angelic tongues. One of the things we need to think through is when we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, what, what carries over is that those who speak in tongues, that they began to speak in tongues to proclaim the mighty works of God, and the people that were present there, they understood. 
in Hellenistic literature, the word tongue or glossa uh, does not mean ecstatic utterances. It, it is always something that is understood. It's not meaningless babble. And so when we want to make an argument for whether tongues uh, was a real thing or not, Paul understands it to be a real language. The Greek is, is clear. Glossa meant something that was understood. What is unclear is what Paul means by angelic tongues. And that's where, that's where we start to, to get stuck. And, and people will take one road or the other. And, and basically the answer is we, we cannot know for sure what exactly Paul is saying when he talks about there is a tongue that is spoken. And it's either an angelic tongue or it is a known language. We just, we just weren't there. It's just, it is, is not possible for us to know for sure. But what we can understand is the fact that it was something that was understood. And Paul's emphasis here, this is where I don't want it to be, it's a speed bump. We don't need to linger here and try to figure out things that we weren't meant to figure out. Paul's emphasis in this whole section of the letter is a weight upon the fact that the Corinthians were immaturely putting this gift above all others. That it was so elevated and it was so unimportant in Paul's mind that he needed to address the fact that you guys are doing all of these gifts. You have such a gifted church, but yet you're taking this one gift and you're elevating it above these all things. And it's starting to cause division. It is the edification of the church that is of paramount concern for Paul. Uh, turn with me really quick and we'll end here. I, I want to show you in, in chapter 14, we'll get there, but I'm fast forwarding. I want you to understand this. The edification of the church, chapter 14, verses 6 through 12. He says, So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in other tongues, how will I benefit you or edify you or how will I build you up unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Something that is understood. And then he gives the illustration that uh, if instruments don't make a distinct note or they don't, aren't played correctly, how, how do we recognize that? And so uh, there may be different languages, verse 10, of languages in the world, and none is without meaning. Words have meaning. The most important thing is for you to understand what I'm saying. So... Be zealous for spiritual gifts and seek to excel in building up the church. Paul links interpretation with tongues because he believes that in order to be encouraged, in order to be edified, in order to be built up, you need to understand what is being said. And if you cannot understand what is being said, if interpretation cannot come alongside whatever this gift of tongues was being spoken of, it needed to be clear and it needed to help build up the church. And that is what's most important. Not division. When we do things that divide the church, we do this with all things. We elevate Republicans or Democrats. We elevate this thing or the other thing. We, we elevate things that cause division that are not supposed to be elevated. And the church of all places ought to be the place which Paul is arguing, which scriptures argues that we need to do all that we can to build the church and strengthen the church, not divide it. And lest we think that, you know, uh, we dismiss tongues in the context of the early church or even, or even today, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 13 through 19, he says, therefore, the person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret. There, right there, is that Paul links tongues with it is prayer. Therefore, the person who speaks in another tongue should pray 
It's in the context of prayer. It's the context of prayer in the church or even private prayer. Look what Paul says, for if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then, he says, I will pray with the spirit and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the spirit and I will sing praise with my understanding. He compares the, the proclamation of singing of songs, most likely the psalms that the Jews sang or new hymns that they were creating as a church. He's comparing the fact that when I pray, I pray with understanding to myself, and I pray in the Spirit, but when I sing, I sing praise with the Spirit. Verse 16, otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the outsider say, amen, I agree, at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you're saying. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in other tongues more than all of you, yet, and here's the thing, yet, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in another tongue. Paul himself, one, praised in tongues. But Paul himself, two, says, in a sense, when he compares, I'd rather speak five words than, than, than 10,000 words, he's basically saying, you're never going to find me do this, what I do in private, in public, in church, because I'd rather teach and, and preach and give you something that is clear. And why does he say that? Because they had such an issue in the church, he was addressing them pastorally. He's saying, you guys are elevating this gift, which I do in private. And he's a sensitive pastor. He says, I do this as well. Like, I'm with you. I'm with you. Let's, let's pray in tongues. But when you do it publicly in such a way that no one knows what you're saying, it is better that you refrain from that so that there might be order and a building up and people would understand. Paul emphasized, so this is a strong defense for a personal prayer language. So if you have an experience of saying you have a personal prayer language and you do speak in tongues and you have come from a tradition where perhaps maybe you have been uh, uh, encouraged to pray in tongues and speak in tongues in private, which is a private prayer, publicly it's always connected to interpretation. But privately, there's, there's nothing pastorally that I personally can say, nor anyone can say, is that you should stop that. It's when we practice it in the public, corporate setting like this of worship, where we're to discern how a particular local church, a, a, a church that is submitted to the leadership of the church and the teaching of the scriptures and the encouragement of one another to say, how will we worship together? And Paul is saying that he prays, but he does it in private. And then he will, he will move on, and he will give them instructions on how to do that orderly, and he will give some other instructions. So there it is. You are, you are smart people. You can read, and you can look and see if anything that I've said is, is not true in the Scriptures, and you can study it for yourselves. I'd be glad to lend you some books uh, that I've read on that. Uh, but uh, we finish with this. In verse 11, where does it all come from? Where do all of these spiritual gifts come from? Verse 11, one in the same spirit is active in all of these things, distributes to each person as he wills. There's no hierarchy of individual value, and there's, there is no one that has a corner or any right to any particular gift. The spirit gives as he wills. And who is the Holy Spirit giving the gifts for? Jesus Christ, when he ascended to sit on the throne, had the power to send the Spirit to give his church to his people, to his body, 
the gifts of the Spirit that Jesus himself manifests himself to us and through us. When we exercise these gifts, when we submit ourselves to these gifts, it is Jesus himself serving us. Isn't that encouraging? That when we serve one another, when we exercise our gifts, we're not, it's not about us, it's about one another. And the reason why it's about one another is because Christ not came, came not to be served, but to serve. So whenever anybody thinks that they're joining a church or participating in a church and it's something that they kind of like, you know, it's just some sort of club or uh, something that they have to do or check off the list. No, it's actually, it's actually as believers, we're joining a local church so that not so much that we might suck all the life out of it, right? But that we might participate in doing what we are called to do, which is be the body of Christ. I get to do this every week, and it is a gift of God. I hope that I do it with clarity, relative clarity, I hope. I hope that it's helpful for you. Um, but we all have gifts to give one another, and we give those gifts because Jesus uh, loves us and wants us to love one another. And so as we, um, as we move forward in this study, I hope that that's the thing that I want us to understand is that, um, you know, and, I, and I've, I've taken quite a bit of time. I wanted to get through the list because I didn't want it to be a part, part 12, you know, it's just, it's, spend a few extra minutes, but how will you respond to this? This is what I want to ask you. Will you, will you pray? Like, if you're a member of this local church, if you've taken the time to uh, go through the membership process, and as you're thinking about your own gifting, would you pray that the Lord would lead you and show you, give you patience in figuring it out? We need you. This local church needs you. Would you have the courage to step out and serve uh, in whatever way, you may not know exactly what your gift is, maybe you do, but it takes time and patience for the Lord to lead you. We, we, we know what our gifts are when we step out in faith and say, I'm just going to do this. You, you, the, the Holy Spirit might nudge you, there might be an opportunity. It might be something that the Lord would have for you to do long term, maybe not. But the way that we evaluate the gifts of the Holy Spirit is we, we allow ourselves to be open to however the Lord leads us. And as we step out in faith and we use our gifts, what will happen is other people will say, you know what, you, you, you're a great encourager. I love being around. Thank you for your encouragement. And the more you hear some of that stuff, you may be like, I might have the gift of encouragement. Some of you are generous givers. You give behind the scenes and you help people. You hear a need and you're like, you cut a check without even thinking. Nobody knows that you cut the check. Just a need is met. Some of you have the gift of teaching. Some of you can teach really well. And uh, there might be opportunities for you to make the scriptures clear. And so I want us to have hearts that would be open to that, uh, to know that the gifts of the, the Holy Spirit are alive and well in our lives, but to also evaluate the way in which we use those gifts and look forward to how those gifts might be manifested, which gifts uh, ought to be manifested publicly and which gifts ought to be manifested in our own private time, and how together with grace and patience as a local church we seek to uh, serve the Lord Jesus using our gifts, but being gracious towards one another who are still learning and trying to figure out how that works out in the context of a large family. The sermon you've just listened to is a presentation of Church Newtown Square. To find out more about our church, check out churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. You are welcome to copy and distribute this sermon to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes 
or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.